Well, hello and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today we are so lucky to have in Judge Paul Herbert uh, calling in from Columbus, Ohio. Paul, how are you doing today? Great, Jeff. Thanks a lot for having me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm super excited about this, uh, having a chance to hear from you. Um, Paul, you've been practicing law in Columbus, Ohio for more than 27 years now. Is that about right? Yeah, probably about 30. Okay, <laughs> about approximately. Yeah. But for a while now, a good while now, you've been a, a judge with the, um, let's see, what was it, the comp- municipal judge? Is that what you're called? I don't, I'm right. not, clearly not a legal scholar over here. <laughs> Um, but you've been doing, you've received all kinds of awards over the year. You, you started an innovative program, um, called catch court. Um, and today we're going to be jumping into this topic of, uh, sex trafficking, human trafficking, prostitution, some of the legal stuff with that. And, and really, um, and I'm trying to give people a rough idea where we're going today, just to let them know you've received awards from tons of people. And I'm sure you would never brag about them, but you've, you know, Models of Justice Awards and Professional Innovation and Victim Services. You've been recognized by uh, the, the U.S. Justice Department and uh, Attorney General Eric Holder um, for your fight against human trafficking. And um, and I'm not, I'm genuinely not trying to oversell this. I'm just telling people listening today that in getting to know you over the past months, you're literally the closest thing to a modern day abolitionist that I've ever met. And um, I'm just super excited and proud to talk to you, and I hope that people are paying attention today because they're going to want to hear your story. Um, Paul, why don't you start us out just sort of, um, you know, what Catch Court, uh, before we can get to what Catch Court is, why don't you just start us out going backwards to your role as a municipal judge and the types of people you were seeing come through, um, and then sort of what was behind the origination of Catch Court, just the actual kind of principle that caught you by surprise. Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, we have a Columbus, Ohio is is the has the busiest court system in Ohio, and we're the 16th largest city in America. So we have hundreds of thousands of cases that are coming through our court system, and I just happen to be a judge on the lowest level of that rung, and so we have a real high volume of misdemeanor type cases, which can be anything from a traffic offense to a domestic violence to operating a vehicle while impaired, as well as about 1,500 women charged with prostitution come through our court every year. Uh, I got the job back in 2004, and by about 2008, I was I was really bored to death, to be honest with you, because <laughs> most of the cases... Once you've seen them, you know, a few times, they're pretty much the same thing over and over and over. Hmm. So I actually had had said a little prayer one night uh, because I had quite a long ways to left to go on my career, you know, but realized I had a a unique position in our in our system. So I said a a little prayer asking God to make make it so that I could be more significant for him in my work, you know, because I didn't want to do anything outside of eight to five, right? Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> so I, if I could be more significant when I had to be there, that'd be a cool thing, I thought. Yeah. Um, and then about six months later, I was down in our arraignment court, which is just a sea of horror. I mean, people that have been abused and people who are in jail and crying and 
one day we had a record-setting number of domestic violences cases set, and, and that meant I had to see about 36 different victims, maybe not that many, but that's how many cases were set. So I saw mm. them, how they talked, how they looked, you know, hair pulled out, black eyes, broken bones, mm. uh, burn marks, cuts, you know, just rub- I remember the bright red rings around their neck from, from that's the way a neck looks when it's freshly choked within 24 hours. And, mm. uh, you know, it's just horrible and pictures from hospital beds and, you know, I, I was really just sitting up there going, you know, why am I, you know, why am I doing this for a living? I, I just, I can't imagine having to sit through and listen to this stuff. So I was up there on the bench, Jeff, and I was, I was trying to figure out a way that I could not do this job anymore because hmm. cause I didn't like to see this and hear all this. And so the victims are coming up on my left and the defendants are coming out chained up to the wall on the right and this was just going on and on and on for hours and and I was kind of getting weaker and weaker and the sheriff brings the next defendant out on the wall and for a split second I looked over at that defendant and I and it, and, and it was a woman and she was in prisoner outfit and she was chained to the wall like everybody else was but when I looked at her I saw a domestic violence victim. I saw she looked exactly like these other ladies that had that had all been in front of me. And mm. I, I was I looked down at the file and I saw a prostitute. And and I I was that just I was shocked because, mm. because uh, you know I'd seen the movie Pretty Woman and pretty much figured I knew everything there was about prostitution. <laughs> and that movie was it, right? Right. Uh, you know you get to hang out with Richard Gere and go to the polo match and. <laughs> and um, so then I started to do the research behind prostitution, the criminology. In other words, what makes a person commit a certain crime? And mm. and that's when I found out the truth behind prostitution that that, that I never knew before. Mm. Well, let's let's jump into that piece of it a little bit, like some of the stuff that you didn't know because um, you were so kind to let me and you let my um, my daughter come along with me with, to uh, visit your catch court, and it's a really powerful experience. Um, and we heard some of the stuff um, you shared some of that that particular day we were visiting. But you know, when we talk about domestic violence and um, trafficking, um, prostitution, all these different things. Um, you know, oftentimes I heard you say at least that uh, prostitution is often considered like the oldest, uh, the oldest job in the in history or something. <laughs> um, how do you say that? Tell tell me about how you say that, and then tell me about um, some of the statistics and more specifically even some of the legal language that we think separates prostitution from sex trafficking. That actually um, is actually there's actually a lot of crossover there. Okay, yeah, the first. The first thing that really just blew me away was uh, the research shows that a third of all women enter prostitution before they're 15 years old, oh, and that that just really uh, shocked me. Uh, and 62% of all women enter prostitution before they're 18, and and that nearly almost all of those uh, juveniles, uh, 96% of them are runaways. Before they get into the into the sex trade business, if you will, and so what you what you find out is that, and I have all sorts of statistics backing this up now, and it, the research is solid. Is that some things start happening to little girls 
uh, our average age of uh, first uh, molestation is eight years old for our population here in Columbus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that starts to change a person on the inside. Mm-hmm. The, their brain doesn't quite develop correctly. They don't understand uh, their own body parts uh, the way they should be, because things are introduced early, sooner than they should. Mm-hmm. Uh, the brain uh, starts to develop uh, responses to these invasions um, that are traumatic responses that are, are somewhat well known, but uh, in juvenile victims, uh, they can be severe. Um, some things called dissociation, we can get into that later. That's a, a, that's a, a typical survival mechanism to trauma that a young person will be able to separate themselves out from what's happening in order to protect themselves from from trauma. So there's some real scientific things going on. Uh, But this little person who will try to tell someone what's going on and they're not listened, or when they do tell someone, usually the results are uh, either they get taken away from their home and placed into foster care, or they get try to be reunified back. They're not believed. Uh, the abuse continues. Uh, either one of those scenarios in America today are not good for our young women and girls, because if you don't start to if you don't immediately start to treat what happened to that kid, they're going to continue down a path that will lead them into this life of being able to sell themselves to to vile strangers you know, sell what's most personally precious to them. Hmm. Um, and so uh, they go through this path of uh, trying to run away from this situation if, if help isn't there. And foster parents usually are not equipped to deal with the trauma that these kids have just had. So the kids will run away, uh, and, and stats show that within 72 hours of being a runaway, a girl will be approached by a a supposed loving adult who wants to try to take care of them, and that's when the process starts of friendship and love, and then it turns wow. to business uh, shortly thereafter. Within 72 hours. That's incredible. Mm. Yes. High, high vulnerable population are runaway. Our runaways are extremely high vulnerable, and there's guys driving around in cars looking for kids. Uh, they don't look like they have a place. Uh, they're still wearing a backpack, you know, mm-hmm. four o'clock in the afternoon. Why haven't they gone home? Maybe I ought to ask, you know, looking at them at malls, walking around. They, these guys, uh, I've heard it said that they have a sixth sense for spotting vulnerable use. Wow. You, you know, you mentioned, you kind of jokingly mentioned, um, pretty woman, the movie with Julie Roberts years ago. Um, but there is this perception. I think whenever we start talking about prostitution, um, there is this per- all kinds of like stereotypes and perceptions that come up that that this is something you know hey you know hey it's probably not good but look these are two consenting adults I mean is it really hurting anybody and then you start talking about the number of these folks that are juveniles and and you start talking about there's actually predatorial predatorial type folks out there on the lookout for them and suddenly this whole thing the the narrative starts to shift a little bit is that fair. Oh yeah. Yeah, there you know, it didn't make sense to me. I'd never thought of it until here I am in the role of a judge and I'm looking out at a person that has 30 prior convictions for selling themselves to strangers and I'm wondering how they got there. Mm-hmm. 
and quite frankly, it didn't make sense to me. It, it just didn't make sense. I, you know, I used to have all these theories that they were so drug addicted that they couldn't do anything else except sell their bodies to get money to pay for the drugs. Well, that's not true. Um, I used to think that these women just grew up as nymphomaniacs and there's, they're out of control sexually and that they just have to have sex all the time, even with strangers. Uh, that's not true. Uh, so, you know, what What does happen is that uh, they are in this uh, for a lot of different reasons, I guess. There's coercion, there's, you know, certain violence, there's there's drug addiction, uh, there's economic dependence along with drug dependence, there's isolation from any supportive type of folks, there's, you know, physical, sexual violence, emotional uh violence uh, and you get a kid that's already had a messed up childhood and it's kind of like a cult type system they fall within the control of this guy mm-hmm. and uh, they they wind up doing anything and these guys play strange games with them uh, you know I've read books about the tactics on on how to do this and they will you know make them think they're giving them a thousand dollar fur even though it's only the two hundred dollar version that they paid a guy to put the thousand dollar price tag on then they take the girl in and say no baby you you know you deserve the best you're my girl and um we heard one lady say that we thought that the trafficker loved her so much because he only made her sleep with five different men a night and he made all the other girls sleep with ten different men a night um but Mm -hmm. Not Mennonites, just to make that clear for the audience. Um, oh, <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, anyway, it's a situation where uh, I call it human trafficking syndrome. It's a combination of a whole bunch of things. So we talk about. I've kind of lost my way a little bit. So you might want to redirect me. Uh, well, back that, to where you want me to go. It's okay. I, I'm just trying to. What I'm just trying to capture here is for folks who. Um, really don't understand the the framework of this conversation, and so I thought it would be important for them to understand that even some like someone like yourself, um, who is who was a part of the court system and a judge in all these cases, you're seeing these victims of domestic abuse come through, um, and then all of a sudden there's this like, wait a second, you got all these repeat offenders coming in being prosecuted for prostitution. Um, and you're all of a sudden seeing some connections between the two and you're like, and so you give, it gives you pause, you start doing research. Um, and just before we kind of jump to the next step, what kind of, um, you know, when somebody, uh, would be arrested for prostitution, I'm not sure what the right legal word is, rescindiary or something like that, but how often would they get, were they likely to come back into the system being, you know, showing up over and over after going through the courts and even prison and stuff? Yeah, pretty much 100% uh, continuing to do other crimes, and that's a whole other education there. I, uh, the other crimes they commit I've learned are mainly at the hands of the, the guys who are uh, have them under control. They're, they're having them do all their crimes for them, so the guys don't get caught. The girls do. But uh, the recidivism rate, you know, we used to just call it the revolving door crime. You know, prostitution was just give them some jail time. They get out. They get caught again. They come back. They get, you know, they do their jail time. They're right back on the drug. So uh, in 2006, there was a study. This might have had something to do with it, that we were spending almost $3 million a year just to arrest and jail our women accused of prostitution in Columbus. Mm. And I got thinking, 
that's a big number and yeah. it's it's just a perpetual drain on limited resources and has anybody ever looked at this so uh, we tried a couple different probation models that were complete failures uh and then once we once we learn the trauma we really need to have a discussion about trauma and i don't know if now's the time or if you want to talk about it later but trauma is really at the root of of why they do what they do and um why they're addicted to drugs and pretty much it's pretty much the the big bang theory of 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 how you solve this issue is take care of their trauma well let's let's do one thing before we get to the trauma part because i think that's key let's talk let's deal with trauma when we get into what catch court really does um but right before we talk about catch court um we're talking about this you know the human trafficking syndrome and we've talked about these guys that are in controlling um these women with a lot of fear um and I mean, I got to hear you share a number of stories that were really just unsettling to when you find out that there's actually like people teaching other people how to be a pimp. And we hear this word pimp thrown around in music and stuff as if it's this lightweight term. And actually, when you realize that this is real life for people, it gets a little sickening, actually. Um, But you tell a story even where um, I I don't know if it was a John. It was just a controlling guy who even came into your courtroom and you could see. You could see the the woman like looking to him for the answers. I don't know if you can describe mm-hmm. that a little bit better so people get an understanding of how traumatized these women are. Well, thanks for bringing that up. I I can't believe I was that ignorant. Really, it's been a kind of an embarrassingly eye opening journey for me because I didn't realize that as long as prostitution's been around, I believe human trafficking's been around. And we can talk about that later, but. I had a case with this with this young woman who came in and this this pretty scary looking dude was sitting in the back of the courtroom and she was taking her plea. Uh we were going to see if she wanted to get in this program and and she was a skinny little, you know, emaciated woman maybe 90 pounds and and she would turn around and look at him and he would nod his head yes or no before she would answer my questions and that was very strikingly odd in mm-hmm. a courtroom, uh, and I didn't. I just didn't get it. But she, we went through the plea, and I'd ask her, "Do you understand this right or that right?" And she'd look back, and he'd nod his head, and she'd say, "Yes, Your Honor. No, Your Honor." Um, so I put her on probation, and I I told her, I said, "You know, I want you to go down to probation right now, and then I want you to come back after lunch with without him being here." I, we mm-hmm. need. I told him, I said, "We need. We need to have her here." without you here. And I, I was getting ready to go to lunch and her attorney comes running back in from the hallway right outside my courtroom. And she's looking like she's going to cry. And she's, she's like, judge, he just assaulted her in the hallway and took her telephone and threw it in the trash can and said, don't you understand? You know, I have to own you. And Mm -hmm. it was horrible. And so I told her attorney, I said, man, I said, just get her down to probation and and then get her back up here after lunch. We just coincidentally had our court. And so I come back from lunch and there's like three ladies with written out statements that were intake officers down in probation. Apparently he threw her up against the wall down in probation. I was screaming at her and just didn't care if anybody saw or heard it. And so uh, we later also found out that uh, he was sexually abusing her seven-year-old daughter, uh, and, which was a grooming process to get the daughter ready to start selling her on the Internet. So, mm. it's, a, it's a well-known 
evil system uh, that's been in place for thousands of years, and I'm really glad our country's now just starting to discover how you know what the signs are, how to recognize it, and how to combat it. Yeah, and I and I didn't want you to bring it up just for the case of hearing a rough story, except that when people um, gather, when people can begin to get their mind around the idea that when women are trapped in these situations, it's not as easy as just saying, Oh, I don't want to be in this anymore and I can get out. If when the, oh, no. when yeah. the guy is willing to actually, I, I heard you tell another story where she was being assaulted and then she bit him or something. And then he called the cops just to show her that he wasn't, that she, not even the cops could help her. Right. 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 Yep. So, um, so you have these women and then they show up and you decide, you know, as you begin to see to me, when I've, kind of heard your stuff the tipping point for me um came when i saw you present the definite like the legal definitions um for what it meant to be trafficked and as a victim and the legal definition for what it looked like to be prosecuted uh for for uh, prostitution um and would you because i felt like that was like where it's like okay wait what are we going to do now because we have this tension legally um, mm-hmm. with this kind of dual status person. And I wonder if you'd be able to describe that for people. Right. So human trafficking, I, I like what Ohio did. Um, the federal law says you're not, uh, says you're not allowed to lure, entice, uh, harbor, transport a woman knowing that she'll be, you know, engaging in a commercial sex act. Um, Ohio words it a little bit differently. Ohio has the same sort of language. It says you're not allowed to lure, entice, harbor, transport a woman, knowing that she'll be compelled to engage in sexual activity for hire. And one day it was kind of miraculous. I was looking over that definition, looking over that definition. I said, well, I wonder what the definition of prostitute is. Uh, So I looked up the law against prostitution, and it said no person shall engage in sexual activity for hire. Hmm. I was like, wait a minute. Um, That's the same exact behavior in one statute that makes you a victim. In the other statute, it makes you a defendant. Hmm. So on one hand, we call you you a victim of human trafficking. We feel sorry for you. And then the other hand, our whole society looks down on you and says you're nothing but a worthless uh, prostitute. Hmm. so it, what also is significant, though, that everyone in your audience needs to be aware of, when you read the red letters of the law, that means that 100% of human trafficking victims are also prostitutes. Hmm. The only difference is that they're compelled to engage in sexual activity for hire rather than willingly engage in it. Hmm. So I commissioned a, an assessment tool with my staff and a think tank out of Washington, D.C., and we did a quick little assessment tool, non-scientific, you know, won't hold up under any academic scrutiny, but we gave it to 100 women charged with prostitution in in Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm. We found out that 92% of them actually fall within the definition of a human trafficking victim, Mm -hmm. even though they're only charged with prostitution. That has some mind-boggling repercussions. And I started showing that to our law enforcement officers in Columbus and some other folks, and they're like, holy cow, this human trafficking problem, if we're going to go with the law instead of the movie Taken, Mm -hmm. if we're going to go by the law, then we've got an awful lot of human trafficking victims out there. 
And so our law enforcement started saying, well, we need to we need to start looking at prostitutes like victims of felonies of the first degree and start treating them like that, you know, getting them services and helping them, you know, establish lives. And maybe they'll be able to cooperate in prosecutions of some of these bad guys. Hmm. Uh, so that's kind of the way we've interpreted it here in Columbus. And I think it's accurate. Yeah. And just to, just one more clarification, I, and I hope people have already heard your um, sentiment on this in the way that you've had to shift from not understanding this at all, even as a judge, to kind of having your eyes open, is that I even heard in your court vice cops that these a lot of these women know them by name because they've seen them showed up on raids and, and all the different arrests. And for the vice cops, even for years, that kind of had a low... Um, they thought pretty lowly of some of the prostitutes until they kind of had their eyes open to some of the stuff you're talking about. And like, Whoa, here, I thought they were just there, you know, cause they wanted to be and their drug addicts and this and that. And like, wait a second, they're actually, this is not like somebody woke up and said, you know what I want to do? I want to spend my life on the streets being abused and, and sold and all the rest. Um, yeah. but, but Paul, this does create all kinds of, of complications in the legal system. I mean, because you still have a law that's saying they're, they're breaking the law and they need, um, you know, legally they're required to abide by that. And yet they're victims at the same time. And so the court system wasn't doing anything for them. And so all of a sudden you got this brainchild that takes us to catch court. Um, maybe just tell us what catch court's about, um, the purpose and kind of describe what, what it looks like for women that go through it, how they get into it and how they go through it, et cetera. Sure. So we can put a we can put a cool label on on what we're talking about. It's called the victim defendant paradigm shift in America right now, on how you can have somebody who is a victim by the same behavior as a defendant. So knowing that and knowing their particular criminology behind how they became in both of those circumstances, uh, we have assembled a court that treats them differently. Uh, than most other courts, and you got to witness that. But most of our entire court system, our entire system of justice revolves around a simple concept, and that is we want to make the court system a place where people never want to come back to. Mm -hmm. and my best example for that is I remember when I was in love with a, another girl when I was about 10 years old, and I decided the best way to show that to her was to ball up a snowball and throw it at her out on the <laughs> recess, and the principal caught me and sent me to the principal's office. That was a place that I never wanted to go back, and he made it such so horrible uh, by yelling at me and then whacking me that I never threw another snowball at anybody again, you know, on school property, of course. Uh <laughs> How, so that's kind of what our court system is. You know, you get charged with something, you come, you know, the police, you know, treat you that way. You come down, the bailiff or the court officer treats you that way. Then the judge comes in and looks down at his, high, his or her high bench down at you. And, you know, everybody's like, holy cow, man, I never want to come back, right? Mm -hmm. And we have to have kind of a system that does that. But that works for a high percentage of our population that hasn't been traumatized, but then, but then there's this other population where they just shut down, man. You put them in that circumstance based on their backgrounds, mm -hmm. and you'll actually make them worse. So we're back uh, to that dissociation no, type stuff where they almost remove themselves from even the trauma of being in the courtroom. Absolutely. They, mm -hmm. they dissociate 
high dissociation when they get under a stressful environment in in our in our in our military service men and women who've been through combat trauma that's why we have started veterans courts as well it's a it's a highly different type of court because you know they're used to and I don't want to get too far off the topic but they're they're used to they're used to rank you know they're used to uh, rules. They're used to a lot of different things, mm-hmm. so you kind of need to build that into your to your veterans court. But for a trauma-based court like like these ladies, mm-hmm. you have to. Uh, for example, when I when I see a lady for the first time, I'll just I'll just like take a deep breath and and I'll I'll look at her right in her eyes with. Uh, a light, if you will, a gentleness, uh, a trustworthiness, a, and I'm just excited to meet her. I'm like, hey, I've heard so much about you. Your attorney has told me how great you are, and my staff has all told me what an amazing woman you are and how great we think you can be. Welcome to my courtroom. I'm honored to have you here. Hmm. They've never been spoken to like that in their entire lives, let alone by a judge in a courtroom. So when they hear that, they they immediately just it's so cool to watch it they just sort of they just sort of a light bulb turns on inside them and they and so they want to hear what you have to say next mm-hmm. and so then you can talk to them and say hey you know we we want to try to figure out how you got here and then what we really want to figure out is how we can get you where you want to go and you know we're going to let you make a lot of those choices but some of them are going to be ones you don't like that we're going to make, and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be treatment oriented. And so then we start to go down that path of starting this courtroom that what we call trauma competent courtroom, uh, and all the staff is trained, and and so it not only helps having that, but it also helps having a room full of other women who've been through the same thing that they have to support them. Hmm. Well, as we get into what catch court is and does how does somebody get into your court like this because you still carry a normal for those who don't understand this you basically as you've created this you've basically given yourself another full-time job even though you still carry a full workload or caseload within the court system but you've created this entire you know which is amazing um but how does how do one of these women that come in um to the courts and everything um find their way into catch court with you so yes, it is. Uh, it is on top of my regular docket. Thank you for reminding me of that. I <laughs> almost forgot about that for about five <laughs> minutes. But uh, <laughs> so basically, you're charged with any offense. We, we used to be prostitution only, but now we've learned that human trafficking victims uh, can be made to do a lot of different things. Uh, and and steer me back, but just for example, you know, girl supposed to be a strip club. She's not there guy who's controlling her calls her says you need you up here she's like man i can't do it i'm strung out tonight you've had me working the last six days he's like get in the car and get here she gets in the car gets popped with an ovi on the way to the strip club you know so it can mm-hmm. be any any type of charge uh you know go in and boost those shoes for me she gets a theft charge it, it can be anything you know steal mm-hmm. the guy's id after you do what you have to do and and then she can get charged with identity theft i mean this is on and on mm-hmm. so any charge can come in but the person has to say yes i'm ready so it's a voluntary program they have to say i'm ready to get out i want out and then we put them through an assessment by a, a licensed social worker 
and we do a, a readiness for change assessment. If if we feel they're ready for the change, mm-hmm. then they keep going through the process. And then we have our whole team, which is a prosecutor, defense attorney, treatment team, probation officer, judge, uh, and they're all in the room, and we vote, you know, hey, is she ready or not? And if she is, then she gets into catch court, which basically you're sentenced to the maximum incarceration. I suspend the jail time, put you into residential treatment, and it's a two-year commitment. So they they have to be on probation to me for two years and basically turn the keys over to their life and, and let us drive it for a while. It's no small commitment what you ask them to do, right? Oh, my gosh. It's probably one of the most difficult things. I, I think it'd be easier to become an astronaut than to graduate from my program. <laughs> yeah, because I think that's one of – sometimes that's a perception when people think, oh, you know, it's nice they're trying to help these people, but – you know, it's like they're just trying to get them off the hook. And there's nothing – I think it is important for people to understand this is not an easy process, but it's it's actually a major commitment they're making, to, and it's hard work, but they really do want to change their lives. Yeah. I mean, you know, people when I started used to call me Judge Hug-a-Thug and all this other thing. And, <laughs> Hug-a-Thug. And, <laughs> but, you know, uh, it's, it's really tough. And we – I think we're going to have about 25% of the women actually graduate, complete the two-year program, which seems kind of low. Like if I was the Ohio State University football coach and I only won 25% of my games, I probably wouldn't be around very long. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Um, <laughs> but – with this population that's had a 0% success. Hmm. Um, but the real number that society needs to listen to is out of over the 200 women that we've had in our program, no matter how long they've stayed, we have an amazing number of 60-some percent haven't, haven't picked up a new charge yet. They haven't been rearrested yet. So hmm. that, that is amazing. If you If you take... The revolving door of revolving door crimes, mm-hmm. you know, it's just 30, you know, 20, 30, 40, you know, convictions, mm-hmm. and they never get arrested again. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, if your baseline is recidivism rate, mm-hmm. you know, heck, you know, they're going to want me to be the head coach for any football team <laughs> on that. I mean, you know, if you look at that type of success. Um, because so even if people four, don't, even if people don't care about the people, I mean, heartless as that may sound, right. from a financial basis alone, this benefits the community at, at large. Right. They're not getting rearrested and put back in jail again. Mm. Um, we actually don't really concentrate on that. We have to to brag about you know our program and right. and all that. But we're more we're in this for the long haul with the women, and that's what I try to tell people across the country. I argue with everybody, and I've learned a lot from these arguments of the courts that do different models. So I do the longest, toughest model out there, um, and it is. But but for me, it's the most rewarding, and I wouldn't change a thing. There's other places that do shorter models that may have a higher percentage of success in with regard to how many people are completing their program, but. Mm. I, I don't know what their long-term numbers are going to be as far as recidivism rate. Well, um, particularly so – oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, what I've learned is is I've taken the, say, like the New York model, which does a much shorter – your first offense, if you do five counseling sessions, you get your case 
absolved differently or dismissed or whatever it is. If it's your second offense, you go to 10 counseling sessions. Third, you go to 30. So they have a graduated, you know, amount of counseling sessions uh, that will help you get rid of your case. I actually adopted that model because it has a lot of merit. Um, I, we we do for women who are just getting their first offenses. We will offer a three uh, three a short course, uh, if you will, and we haven't attested its effectiveness. But I really appreciate the dialogue that I've had with the folks across the country on this issue because I learn a lot from them. I just hope that more folks start to learn that if how what multiple complex trauma does to a woman and how you have to treat it in order to have this, you know, lifelong success. That that's really what, you know, so I want I'm hoping this actually gives me somewhat of a platform to, you know, to tout that program. Hmm. And you did talk about trauma being at the root of of what's going on with all this and so over the course of this 2-year program, it sounds like you've got these you've got social workers but but folks show up to if they're in the program they're basically showing up to you have a special um which is what you invited um uh, that i got to sit on with you um but every week they come in is that right i don't know if they always have to be there every week or if they're just it's optional how does are that work are you talking about the participants or the i'm talking about people that are actually in you can describe the whole scene because what i experienced was was both you show up to catch court which is a special session you were up on the bench and you had to do some of your normal work where people were brought in and you were presiding over. It. And that was even interesting because the women that were, were on probation, but in, in court with you were watching this happen and they knew mm-hmm. like they knew the lady who was wearing the inmate suit, you know, coming in mm-hmm. standing before you in, in handcuffs or zip ties as mm-hmm. it were. Um, and that was a very fascinating to watch them kind of talking to her and, you know, you're interacting with them about who you're hanging out with and, who were you hanging out with in the prison? What kind of job did you have in the jail? And these women are like, what are you doing that for? And stay away from that person, you know? And then you were actually saying to some people, we said part of their, the ruling or whatever is that they couldn't be around certain people. So how does just yeah. kind of paint that picture for people? Cause I don't think they would understand that dynamic. Yeah. So the normal probation model is you come in once a month, you meet with the probation officer and you never see your judge again unless you get in trouble. Okay. Our model is you come in and meet with a judge once a week in a courtroom setting filled with other participants. So, and you may meet with your probation officer more more often than that. So, so it's super high uh level of accountability and and in the beginning interface with the court system. So every week they're coming in, and we have our court session where uh, I'm required to speak to each one of them and ask them how they're doing. I have detailed notes that my staff prepares that tells me about what's going on in their lives, you know, some good points, some bad points, what I might, you know, maybe what would help me talk about, what other women might be able to help them talk about. So that's sort of a roundtable discussion and then we have the the legal needs as well. So either people who are in trouble for not, you know, abiding by my rules, or uh, folks who are just getting in the program. You saw a little bit of all that. Um, one of the coolest things, though, is the women interacting with the other women. Uh, 
they almost do the work for us. You know, they know, they all know, they can see stuff that we can't see in other women that that's going wrong. You're like, Hey, you know, what are you doing dating this guy? And we saw you, you know, at a meeting with him. So they, they call each other out, which is really cool. Um, and they know which, who the pimps are around town, right? I mean, they know these, Oh they yeah. Know the network. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So one thing I learned is that because of their early childhood abuse, and their lack of any kind of um, real upbringing, they they only know unhealthy relationships with men. And non-character men can see that in them and will take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. So I tell them, and this is kind of an AA standard, no dating within the first year. And then after the first year, if you want to date, we have a dating protocol. Okay. Now, if somebody, you know, after nine months, they're doing great in treatment, they, you know, want to go along with, you know, I mean, it's not a year, it's not a fast year, but it's kind of the, the, the baseline. So they, and part of the dating protocol is that they have to be willing to, to introduce that man to our staff and then eventually meet me. So mm-hmm. if he goes through the whole process, passes staff, approval then he meets with me and that's a really rough meeting that's Mm. a really really rough meeting and i try to example a couple things during that meeting number one i mean i grew up in the 60s where some things were pretty messed up uh, as far as roles and who was to do what but now i know that men our roles is to serve and protect the women that we know and are in contact with. That's like our main role and let them do the rest because they're way capable of doing very successful things. So, so I model that, you know, I, I have the old fashioned, you know, meeting with the guy and saying, do you, do you understand how important she is to all of us here in this room? Do you understand how upset we'll be if a single hair on her head gets harmed in any way? You know, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm right out there. I'm letting him know that, you know, Basically, I'm letting him know that you might have this, you know, opinion of her that she's a vulnerable woman, and you may have seen that, and you may be in there taking advantage of that. But dude, you better not. You better grow up right now, or mm. I'm going to be all up in your grill. Mm. And uh, you know, that usually is pretty effective. Yeah, I. I mean, I'm. I don't even know what to say. I'm kind of emotionally stirred by that picture. Only. And it builds up the fact that I got a chance to see you with these women and the fact that even me being in the courtroom, um, you made a point to, hey, there's a guy in the back um, because it's really mostly just women besides you and that you are the safe kind of mm-hmm. fatherly figure there. Um, it's just uh, it's a very powerful dynamic. And um, so thanks for doing that. I am. Um, yeah, it throws me off because of, of the emotional nature of that. But I appreciate uh, the step you're taking there. Um Paul, what, what are, what have we not talked about? I mean, I, you know, this goes on, you know, you talk about with catch court, um, because you're a full-time judge and this is like a, you know, your passion to do catch court and you guys meet every week and you're actually doing it two days a week now with, um, you know, you're overwhelmed with a workload and yet you still, you know, the question becomes is how, why aren't more people doing this, you know, and it's so complicated. Um, it's not complicated and but yet we're having this conversation because people don't understand the idea of, or what was the the word you said? The, um, the, I don't know, you had a label for it. The, um, <laughs> changing from the victim to the, to the, uh, or 
the Vic- paradigm shift. Victim defendant paradigm shift. Thank you. Um, that's a process people have got to be brought in through. And I know that you do your best to try and get the word out when possible. But um, so how do you do it? You're doing, edu- you know, your hope as people hear this stuff. Um, what do people do with this? You know, I mean, what is the, yeah. I mean, that's a, it seems to be an obvious question. Well, no, it's, it's, it's amazing where I go. I can give the same message over and over in, and every group needs to hear it. Uh, I'm even going to the women's prison tonight and training their volunteers and mentors about, you know, trauma and things like that. So what you can do is you need to really educate yourself. Go on the Polaris Project uh, website and start reading more and more about what the truth is behind this and start to learn to look at these people differently. Um, It is completely different than Hollywood has uh, painted it to be. I mean, you know, are there are there women that voluntarily get into this? Um, yes. Are, are there women that you know are foreign born and get snatched and chained to beds and drugged up and sold for sex? Yes. But the majority of human trafficking in America is 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 against domestic born, you know, our American girls uh, in. And, and and this heroin epidemic, I got to tell you, is fueling the sex trafficking epidemic, and we've seen that over the last 10 years. And I don't know if you want to get into that because that's all everybody talks about is the heroin epidemic. But you know, heroin is a, is extremely effective at controlling an individual. Um, if you just want to look at the 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 different women now that we're seeing are not necessarily the traditional child abused and, you know, sexually abused at eight years old. Now you're getting the, you know, the girls who, you know, may have gone to grown up in the country club that, you know, experiment with drugs that get hooked on an opiate and they have to put themselves in higher risk situations in order to continue on with that habit. Um, and at the root, they're still, they're still women. And, that means that people want to use them, and so they so they get in these situations where where these experts, human traffickers, can can break them down and put them in situations where they're dependent on them, and they get used just like anybody else, and mm. we see that happen as well. So you you got to be aware that it's that it's not just um, you know it's not just you know, your poor inner city kid that doesn't have, have a chance. Mm. A couple things you need to be aware of for your listeners out there. Our girls, and I've got two daughters, uh, they're all vulnerable on their smartphones. That's the one thing you need to be aware of that I think that, that if I was going to ask you guys a fearless question, it'd be, do you know what your kids are doing on their smartphones? And I mean, really, do you know what they're doing? Because there's all sorts of social media out there that us older folks, we don't have a clue. Mm. Uh, And the only way I know that, Jeff, is because I do search warrants. Uh, As a low-level judge, the police bring me search warrants, and which shows me what's going on with our kids out there. There's a, it's not even new anymore, but a, a social media site called Kik, K-I-K. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like the Facebook for young kids. I did a search warrant where a kid had a smartphone laying on the counter. 
mom was making dinner. And I don't know about you, if my kid's phone lights up, I look at it and see who's calling or who's messaging <laughs> or whatever. Mom looks at the cell phone and boom, up pops a porno, porno, child pornographic image. Mm. Mom freaks out, calls the police. Police come out, write a search warrant, come to me. We find out a 28-year-old boy is sending these messages to her 12-year-old girl. Mm. Um, so this stuff, they, they're very, very vulnerable. These people can get to them when they're in their bedrooms through their phone. And so search warrant after search warrant where 14-year-old girls are sending pictures to guys uh, you know, that they shouldn't be sending. Uh, and these guys are just out there finding, hey, how – how how far will she go? What will she do? So that'd be a fearless question that I would ask that anybody can do. Uh, guard your guard your child the most the best way you can, and that's through that cell phone. And I'm not kidding you, man. I've seen so many things. That mm-hmm. that's definitely one area that your your listeners should okay. be aware of. Okay. Well, one of the other questions I had was about the um, you know you've set up this model that is pretty widely appreciated. Um, and yet, like I've mentioned a couple times, you're a full-time judge. This is, this is requires an extra commitment on your part. So, um, it could very easily, it, it's two, it's two people's job and you're doing it by yourself. And then a third person's job advocating for it on your own as well. Yeah. And so, um, what would it take for, you know, as people around the country begin to catch up to speed to the nature of the problem, because um, it does seem like I hear about a number of organizations that are against sex trafficking trying to rescue people out of it, but it doesn't really feel like there's much um, connection to the court systems, which is an yeah. in- inevitable part of it. So if someone's in a state, you know, you're in Columbus, Ohio, but there's somewhere else they're saying, hey, how do we bring this kind of thing to to our state? Um, what, is it, what does it really take? I think there has to be judicial leadership on this issue. Um it can be driven by the police, and we have uh, human trafficking courts in Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Dayton right now, as well as Columbus. So we're we're doing great here in in Ohio. Uh, in Cincinnati, it was driven by the police. The police said, "Hey, uh, we've got all these girls out here. We want to try to help. Can you guys start this court?" And they did. But judges, if a judge can 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 lead this, they can call the police. They can call the other stakeholders. They can get the treatment together. They can figure out all these issues um so you so i would say judicial leadership is huge from the like the supreme court level uh that could reach out to lower court judges like myself and say hey there's this court would anybody like to do it we've got some funding we'll help you plan it also on a national level you know i, I the and i i don't i'm not i don't want to talk politics but not much has been happening on a national level for for quite a long time, I would love to see a real robust um, human trafficking czar, if you will. That's kind of an old phrase; shouldn't even use <laughs> that. But you know, someone who can can pick a city. You know, like like let's pick Atlanta, Georgia. That, mm. I mean, that's where I want to go to Atlanta, Georgia. You know, we got 1.3 million people in Columbus, Ohio. They got 13 million people. Mm. You know, with pro sports and conferences and airports and all that. Let's pick Atlanta. And let's take some let's take some of our some of our team down there, and and help them get it started and monitor it. And then you know so, heck, man, you start planting some of these things in these big major cities. You know, find you know I, I, that's what I would love to see some leadership 
on a national level uh, with some of the grant dollars that they have. They've got millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars of grant money out there. Um, let's start figuring out how to use it and build these systems. Instead of just giving it to this little program to do this and that little program to do that, right. it looks good. You can write your annual report. It looks great. But you're not establishing a sustainable system. So I would love to see something not just by state judicial leaders but mm. by our national leaders. So you basically you're looking if you can p- implement something like that in a, in a place like Atlanta – then hopefully people would see that play out, the effectiveness of it, realize it's actually cost-effective for everyone, and it's better for society, the people. Just it, It's a win-win for everybody, right? Yeah. Okay. And just to clarify also, when you were talking about the Supreme Court on the state level, you're saying anybody who has any connection to justices that are on the state Supreme Courts or police, you know, that those are people that we can try and talk to and get the message directly to them. Um, refer them back to places like your your work at Catch Court, which, by the way, website's catchcourt.org, I believe. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, well, Paul, let's. Um, you've given us so much so much information today, um, and I hope that when people listen to this, it's um, it's an eye opening conversation. I hope that they don't um, turn away because it, when you hear the words like sex trafficking and prostitution, it feels it can feel heavy. Um, mm-hmm. But just as someone who's learned more and more about you, gotten to see your court in action, that this is not an unmanageable thing. These are just human beings that are stuck in situations they don't want to be in for the most part. And that we're just trying to create a system to help them find a way out. Um, And it's doable. And so I do hope this starts the conversation for people and they keep leaning into it, um, even on a local level. But... You know, you mentioned the fearless questions. I always ask people, you know, what are the questions you wish more people were asking? You've already given us one with the, with the, hey, what's on your kids' phones, but is there anything else you wish people um, would spend more time asking? You know, when we started, I had one I forgot, so all this time's been, so <laughs> I can't really remember. Uh, the one thing that I want to tell you is that you're, you brought up a really good point. A lot of people just think this is so horrible and this is so awful and it's enslavement of human beings and my god you know it's it's as bad as it can get which is which is is true but when when the victims get freed to see women the resiliency of these women to see what they can become what their potential is is probably the most glorious thing that's ever happened to me in my life so if you take steps to go into the darkness and and just put your toe in there and say, I'm going to go and I'm going to fight a little bit on this. Uh, the reward, what you get back is just, it's just incredible, you know, mm-hmm. just incredible. I mean, one of the first people that we um, took into our program now works for the prosecutor's office that prosecuted her for her crimes. Wow. Uh, and she has her son back and she bought her first house and she's going to college. I mean, it's it's just incredible, uh, just given a little chance, you know, how amazing these folks can become. So that's that's kind of what's the, this the constant surprise around the corner, man. Hey, what you know what's what's gonna, you know, yeah, you lose a person here or there, but man, look at these three other people that are doing great. You know, it's it's really, yeah. really amazing. Well, Paul, that maybe we can wrap up with this because um, we didn't actually touch on this, but what is it that when you start talking about the you use the word glorious, which I don't hear that word used very much, but that's actually a beautiful word for this. 
Um, what is the thing that, cause I've, I've seen videos and things of people when they graduate the program at, you know, you know, governor K six house, you know, or something like, or the mansion, mm-hmm. I don't know where it is, but where they graduate, tell people mm-hmm. what happens if they make it through, like, what is, what do they get? Because there's some stuff you give to them at the end. That's really, really cool. Well, um, they do, they get to go to the governor's house and, uh, our, our governor's residence here in Columbus and they get a they get to graduate, which is a huge celebration. They get certificates and they and they get it honored and all that. But I also hand them something else. I hand them a piece of paper that dismisses and seals all of their convictions. And they they really like that. It's like you know your debt's paid. You know to tell us die. You know good job, man. You know you're free. And and they really really like that. Um, so we just we just try to help them along those lines. Yeah, and I just for people listening, you know, if you if you do check out the website or maybe Google a few things, if you can catch one of those videos out there, and I'll try and link up to some of them on the on the blog notes. Um, to see someone having fought through this stuff, and to see you, maybe you don't even feel it in the same way as when I when I see it, but um, you use the word free um, casually, but the hope that seems to spring forth in people's lives, they're like, wait, I'm free. Like this stuff is a part of my story, but this stuff no longer has me prisoner. And, um, it's just a very, very, uh, beautiful thing to see. So, um, Paul, thank you so much. I, uh, thank you for your service and for your sacrifice. Um, there's no way that people would ever be able to, um, measure the amount of personal sacrifice that you, not just the time and energies and heart and, and stress and, and stuff you've had to walk through. Um, but also the loss of other things you could have done, you know, other opportunities that you would have as a, you know, successful guy, um, with a family. Um, so make sure and tell Barb and your kids that we appreciate, uh, what your family's given up for you to be a part of this. And, um, just really grateful for you and anything we can do or, um, in the future, please, uh, just let me know. Okay. All right. Well, thanks. It sure has been a pleasure getting to know you and support the work you're doing. I think you're great. So keep up all the good work, buddy. All right. Thanks, Paul. All right. Bye-bye.